Welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. This week on the show, I welcome the legendary writer Gay Talese. Gay is the father of two adult daughters, the grandfather of no one, and the author of some of the best pieces of American magazine writing ever written. He's perhaps best known for his Esquire essay, Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. I visited him on the Upper East Side townhouse he shares with his wife, the editor Nantalese. We talked about his marriage, his father, a poor tailor from Italy, Sinatra's dad, a boxer, and how the actor Peter O'Toole convinced Gay to have children. Welcome to the Fowlery Podcast. My name is Joshua David Stein. I hope you enjoy yourself. Yeah, this is Gay Talese with Joshua once again, this time at my home. Last time, where was it? Across the street, we went to a restaurant. Out of business now, it's called Maison Hugo. Maison Hugo. Last time we talked was more focused on restaurants. Was it? Vaguely. This is more focused on fatherhood. Okay, well, I can tell you a lot about that. I would like to hear everything you have to say about it. Well, it's never an expected occasion when you're 24. Is that how old and you were? And I was married. Well, I was actually, when I got married, I was 27. But I thought I was 22 or 21. I thought I was 19. I feared marriage. And certainly, one of the reasons I feared marriage is it inevitably would lead to children. The reason I feared marriage, and parenthetically children as well, is I saw marriage as the end of freedom. I saw it as the end of fantasy dream. I saw it the end of dreaming. And I wish my na- my wife would answer the phone. She never. She doesn't answer the phone. I can't. Maybe she knows who's calling. That's all right. Oh, excuse me. So you were scared of marriage because you thought it, you equated it with a loss of freedom. Did you equate fatherhood? You have two daughters. Did you equate fatherhood with even more of a loss of freedom? Was that the train of thought? Well, the reason I did get married, which was almost out of a protest. I mean, there was no such thing as a shotgun in marriage, but essentially it was. Uh, but when I was on an assignment in 1959, the New York Times Magazine gave me an assignment to write about Rome, right in the middle of the summer, July, I mean, uh, May, June. And I'm over there, and I'd known Nan for two years. My girlfriend, Nan, at the time, Nana Hearn, A-H-E-R-N, her better in 57, this is 59, it was June. And God, I'm so Irwin Shaw. That's Irwin Shaw, the novelist and screenwriter. What are you doing? Well, I'm finishing this piece for the Times, and... Just call my girlfriend, and she, I, she, she's coming over, but she wants to get married. I said, I don't want to get married. I said, oh, come on. What's the difference? <laughs> he says, if you get married, I'll give you a party. Really? So she came over, and Erwin, who knew a lot of people, and he knew people in Italy, Rome, and he knew a guy who was the head of the Paramount office in Rome, and they said, we can get you married. So they did. So I got a marriage arranged in the municipal building, which is a beautiful building. And Irwin came, invited some of his friends. You got married for the party. The party was beautiful because the reason it was beautiful, Fellini was making this movie and all over town, the actors were around, the, this, the cafes, Anoukame, Marcello Mastriani, Fellini himself. I went out to see him. The Chinichita was where the film, the scenes. I went out yeah. there. Like, I met these people. Irwin got me passes. 
And then when it came time to get married, he invited some of these people to the, to the, <laughs> to the reception at the Excelsior Hotel. I was really a movie star for about a weekend. So I'm in Rome, and we do get married. We do return. Nan's mother and father were very angry that we didn't marry in the church. They wouldn't talk to me. And they didn't. Uh, father died. He was much older than the mother. But the mother remained alive for the next 40 years and wouldn't talk to me. You didn't talk to your mother-in-law for 40 years? Hmm. Until she had Alzheimer's. And she forgot that you she didn't forgot get married. She, she, she was sick, and she stayed here for a while. And she had Alzheimer's, but she didn't know who I was. We got along great. We used to watch baseball games on television. She was a baseball fan. But let's get back to the marriage and then to the children. In 1963, during this strike... One of the assignments I got from Esquire was to talk to Peter O'Toole, who was already had the big Lawrence of Arabia movie made in you know, 61 or 60 or somewhere. He lived in London. He was going to talk to me, and I flew over there, and I met Peter O'Toole in London. His manager was a guy named Jules Buck. Anyway, Jules Buck was an old Hollywood cameraman who elevated himself and met, met movie stars and got to be manager of Peter O'Toole. And I was, um, when I got there the first day, Peter said, you know, I, I said I'd give you a couple of days, but I can't. I have to go to Ireland. He said, now, if you want to come in Ireland, you can come with me, but I can't stay here. I have to leave tomorrow. I said, okay, I'll go. So the next five days, I'm in Dublin with him, staying in a little hotel somewhere. But wherever he was going, he let me go with him. You know, I met John Huston, a lot of movie actors in, in Ireland. And, and I hung out and he gave me a lot of time. I just loved Joshua, the only time I really liked my assignment was this. Yeah. I believe really, it's a job I do my best. I don't really like the people that much. If, even if I write ni nicely about them. This is the one exception. It was such a intelligent and curious and man. He really asked me questions about myself. He said, you're married? Yeah. I said, how long have you been married? I said, 59. That's four years ago. You have any children? No. Why not? Oh, I... I don't have enough money, and I'm a little worried about how it would affect my life and my wife's life. He's crazy. He says, I have a child. He had a three-year-old daughter, Kate. Look at me. I'm, a mo I was, I'm an actor. Yeah. You know what? He said, I'm not, I don't know you, but it seems to me you're a little cautious, and also maybe you're not a risk taker. You're not a risk taker. And I thought, oh, here is this movie, International Star, talking to me and I'm not a risk taker and he's did he put his finger on it no, you know he said you're not a risk taker just it's just conversation it was in Ireland it's you know taking a walk after being at a pub and just and I said I don't know I'm not a risk taker but I just I don't he says I don't have any money either look you have to just, you have to think big he said you have to be free 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 Your fucking father was the end of it no no we'd be free this guy was free yeah. He had a wife who was a movie actress. He had a child in a big house and a big career. And he said, you know, um, your wife is in New York. She works at a publishing house. Why don't you ever come over? When we get back to Ireland, I have some free time. We'll continue this. Why don't you ever come over and you can stay in our house? This is a big house they had. Yeah. You're kidding. No. Yeah, call her up. So I call him. I said, Jesus, says, you know, we're going back in London tomorrow and be there for a whole week and Peter's tools said you could stay there yeah so she says fine that's where we conceived her first child she was born 
June 15th of 1964. He said be free to be, be free. a father, and you said yeah. yes. Yeah. Well, I felt, first of all, I didn't want to be not considered a risk taker. Right. I didn't want to be, you know, the fucking afraid, a frightened guy. And I felt that if you're going to let a baby's birth cause you to become a boring, old, conservative, bean counter kind of guy, yeah. then you shouldn't be a writer. Get a job in law school, do something else. We'll be back with more Gay to Lease after a quick word from our sponsor, Hum by Verizon. The Fatherly Podcast is brought to you by Hum by Verizon. No one wants to be stranded on the side of the road, especially when you have little ones in the car. But since a road is an unpredictable place, it helps to have Hum by Verizon, the connected car system that assists and empowers drivers. Now you can check your car's health from your phone. And if you have questions, you can connect to a mechanics hotline for expert, unbiased advice, and even get quotes on repairs. Need help on the road? Hum works with a nationwide network of mechanics and can send a tow truck out to your location. And if Hum detects a crash, it can automatically notify emergency services. It's a smart way to stay on top of your car's health and keep your family safer on the road. Get Hum and get where you're going. Learn more at hum.com. As a journalist, you've profiled so many people. You've thought about people's character. But as you've profiled these people, if you, as you've spent time with very notable, interesting people, the winners and the losers, how have you seen their relationship with their father influence them? Let's take Frank Sinatra's father. I met Frank Sinatra's father when I, I spent more time with Frank Sinatra's father than I did with Frank Sinatra because of that. He wouldn't talk to me. You know that whole story. And I remember Frank Sinatra's father, I only met him for occasion for an interview that was mainly with Frank Sinatra's mother, but the father was there. He's an old, he was a fireman, but when he was young, Frank Sinatra's father was a prize fighter, uh, had, still had some marks around his face, and he had, he, he didn't use the name Sinatra, he used the name O'Brien. You wouldn't believe it, but in ter- times in the 1930s and 40s, you had to change your name to get more fights in Italian, you couldn't get fights. You, right. You, no one would want to fight you. Credible. Yeah. Or, or, or the, the, so he used the name Slapsy O'Brien. Can you believe it? And I remember when Sinatra died, I wrote a, a little op-ed for the Times about how Sinatra never changed his name. And there wasn't much of a relationship between Sinatra and his father. It was really Sinatra and his mother. In the case of Joe DiMaggio, another guy I interviewed, he wasn't that much relation with his father either. His father was a fisherman. Yeah. And DiMaggio was very isolated as an athlete. Um, Peter O'Toole, his father's a bookie. He talked wonderfully about his bookmaking father, a little bit of a ne'er-do-well, as he himself would become, as he got older and older, O'Toole. My own father, my own father was in a way like I am, and being a craftsman. But my mother made money. My mother was the only the reason we could have a new car. My mother was the only reason I had enough money for college. My mother was, a, was an entrepreneurial person. Not a, she didn't make anything. My father made beautiful suits, he couldn't sell them. I've said somewhere that he was, the father was the James Salter of tailors, you know, beautiful writing, but didn't make any sale of the book. My father influenced me though, 
in, in caring about work. He said, even if it doesn't sell, it's got to be a beautiful suit, the stitching, the hang, the, the durability of it. Buttons don't pop off. He took great pride, and I picked that up as, 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 as writing like a tailor, as I often say I do, taking my time, worrying about doing something that holds up. I felt sad that he couldn't make enough money to be the tailor he wanted to be. The only reason he made money is thanks to my mother. But my mother, whose women were middle-aged, well-to-do women in a small town, women who, who really needed the help of good dresses to make them look more presentable. My mother was wonderful choosing dresses to suit certain women. And when the dresses were purchased, sometimes they needed altering, shortening, open here or there. That's what my father did, mainly. He was in the back of the room, at the back of the tailor shop, mostly working on women's dresses. That's just so humiliating. Not that he ever complained, but this is what his life as, a, as an artist with a needle and thread, the suits he wanted to make didn't have an audience. Do you still miss him? Yeah, I remember that. And my mother, I miss her too, because she lived to be 99. And she died in 2006. My wife and my mother have in common that they work full time. Maternity leave didn't factor into our marriage. My wife didn't take maternity leave. Did you take paternity leave? Oh, no, but she didn't. Even she didn't. <laughs> well, she was working and she would come home when the children were infants. She would come home for two hours. She'd never have lunch with agents and writers during that period for about three years. Dinner, but not lunch. She only worked for publishing houses that were in walking distance of this house. Shows you how she was very privileged. Do you feel like when you had kids, you altered your career choices or not? No. First of all, when we got married, she said, I'm not going to stand in your way. I'm not going to do it. You can have freedom. I just want to be married to you. Okay. And boy, did she live up to that. When we had children, it was the same thing. Where I am blessed is financially is not that I had to make a lot of money. I had to make a little money, but she made a little money. And here was the important thing in our marriage. <clears throat> we never, in almost 60 years of marriage, Nan and I never had a babysitter, never shared a bathroom. In six decades of marriage, never shared a bathroom. Do you know what her bathroom looks like? A bathroom. We never had a babysitter. That was the important. Was we always had enough money and also enough room for a live-in person, a little girls from Germany or Austria or someplace would spend a year, live with us for a year, live here, get a certain amount of money and one night off a week. So we never had a babysitter problem. Do you feel like you were a close and present father to your daughters? Very much. Now, when Nan had the first child, I felt I just liked, liked having children, much to my surprise. I was a very good father. I've always been a very good father, both of them. What was the hardest part for you to be being a father? The most challenging part for you? I, there was, I never had anything, never nothing negative. I, I think there's something very sad about being a father 
and getting to like the men that are dating your daughter and have it break up, you're never acknowledged. I take these guys to dinner. In one case, I buy these guys suits because I like to dress them up a little bit. I'm not saying that there's any reason or fault involved in the breakup because they never were married. Oh, no, I'm sorry. What am I talking about? What are you they talking married. about? They were married. Yep. But before they were married, there were other boyfriends. I have a whole cast of characters here. Yeah. Beginning with Stephen Sollins at Bard College, okay? I met his father, his mother. I liked them. Yeah. You and got involved. I got involved. Another one, uh, getting Catherine, another one. And then, then Catherine marries this guy named Brendan Cavanaugh. I got to know his father. He was, his father was a, was a theater director. I, I knew him and then lasted eight, ten years. Yeah. And then they break up. Brendan Cavanaugh and I don't talk to anyone anymore. Did you say goodbye to him? No. No. This, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. There's no ethical or formal polite method in your termination as father-in-law. Yeah. To say nothing about the less formal relationships that you have with the boyfriends that are dating your daughter for a period of time. You know, they become part of the family. They're here at Christmas time. They're trips together. They're somebody's birthday. We're all together. Nan's birthday. We all go to Le Cirque and I bring the boyfriends, right? Then the marriage, the, the relationship with the marriage breaks up. And you know, if you're having a divorce, you go to court. But you don't go to court when the father-in-law becomes no, more, no longer the father-in-law. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's... One of the smaller sadnesses of breaking up, it seems adversarial, even if no one really wants it to be, you know, because if it was a friend, you would say goodbye. I was never critical of any boy that dated either daughter of mine. Um, they might be critical and surely expressed it to me, but I had no particular feelings because I didn't see what they were seeing or feeling what they were feeling. I was feeling I had male company, which I don't have. Since I have no son and I have no grandchildren either. So I have no male company within the family. I have them, the two daughters, and whatever works for them works for them, and I accept whatever it, whatever yeah. it is. But those in interesting men that I met always like to know what's on the mind of young men, and these are guys that are, you know, 40 years younger than me. Yeah. Now, was, you, you want someone to bro out with. And okay. knowing that, one of, the, one of the guys married to Pamela would get me theater tickets. Go, and, and go, <laughs> no, we'd go to Brooklyn to BAM, and, and I wouldn't go to BAM. It's too far. I mean, yeah. He did. Oh, the, he was introducing me to his life. Another guy was a photographer, but he took he would hang around with rock bands, take pictures for yeah. albums. So I meet the rock bands, and I was getting. Well, you're a very curious guy who yeah. jumps in with both feet. You know, but I had access to, uh, intimate through the through the family arrangement. I had young male friends yes and i lost these young male friends not not that i i'm pining over the matter so much but but there was, it was you learn well, you know i'll always come up and hang out with you if you want <laughs> no but uh, anyway i don't talk to that many fathers of adults and i always wonder do you feel like your identity as a father is diminishes as your children get older or is it a steady not in state my case, no it hasn't now one of the reasons i assume is that they didn't move away. See, most people have children living miles and miles away, sometimes another part of the nation. In my case, or Nan's case, our daughters always remained in New York. They went to school outside of New York in a way. 
they got jobs in New York, then they remain in New York. They, they don't live with us, but they live, one of them lives in Brooklyn, Pamela, has a studio in the Navy Yard, as I told you, and Catherine lives near Chinatown. We see her every week, sometimes with their friends. Next Tuesday, I'm having dinner with Pamela and a gay friend she has, which I wish she would marry, this guy. Such a nice guy. Uh, I see one major hiccup Mm -hmm. in that marriage. Why? Because Uh, he's gay? Yes. No. Why? I don't know. She's 55 or something, whatever. She never wanted children. She's a painter, and it's almost like being an actress. I mean, you're free. You can... It doesn't change the basic mechanics of a marriage. I feel like your marriage to Nan, which I know you've been working on a book for the last decade on, yeah. is unusual to a lot of people in the sense that you are so separate. So much of your relationship is about letting the other person do their own thing. It's true. And as I was talking to my therapist about this morning, I feel like that is a, that's one understanding of a marriage, but not often shared by other people. A lot of people think the marriage is about you two building something together and bending yourselves together yes. into each other. As a, as a parent. Well, they're not inconsistent. The, building something together, we've done that. We've also lived these separate lives that you mentioned, but they're not, in, they're not incompatible. What I mentioned before, it's important to have space. Now, if you're poor, you don't have space. But when the children wanted things, our daughters needed help, she would drop it. Nan was always, I was always there. I mean, we raised the children together, uh, but we always had help, as I said, it wasn't that she had to give up her career, right? I, I could always travel. I always traveled. Sometimes I traveled with the children. I took the you know children with me. Yeah. They went to Vienna. Went to Rome. Went to with Nan. Went to China with Nan. I mean, we always took vacations together. They were, we were part of your life. They were uh, every day. We're in touch almost. You want to take some calls and do some work? You can take a break if you want. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, TLC, and we'll be right back with a fatherly questionnaire starring Gay Talese. When your baby has a baby, it's all hands on deck. TLC's new series, Unexpected, explores the ups and downs of three pregnant teens who are all children of teen mothers themselves. Parents and grandparents must step in and help them through this huge life change. Tensions mount as everyone has conflicting ideas for what is best for the young parents and their baby. Don't miss the revealing new series, Unexpected, Sundays at 10, 9 central on TLC. Stream live and catch up on TLC Go. Download the free app now. Ready? Yeah. Starts off very easy, so. What is your name? Gay Talese, G-A-Y-T-A-L-E-S-E. Occupation? A writer, reporter. Age? I'm 85. I was born in February 7th, 1932. How old are your children? My children are 55, I think, and 52. They're three years apart. I'm not sure. Born 64, and the other was born 1967. What are their names? Pamela's the firstborn, 
and hates to be called Pam. It's Pamela. And the second is Catherine with a C, named after my mother, Catherine. Are they named after anyone in particular? Yes, my my daughter Pamela is Pamela F. Pamela Francis Talese. That's my father's middle name. And the other girl, Catherine, is Catherine Gay Talese. Obviously, I'm celebrated there. Do you have any cute nicknames for your children? No, determinedly no. Neither child wants to be called. Pamela not answer to Pamela. And Catherine, no, there's no, no, no nicknames. What do they call you? Call me dad, not daddy. How often do you see them? Once a week at minimum. Describe yourself as a father in three words. Ever present. I'm available on a full full time availability. That's it. Full time full time availability. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Describe your father in three words. Same full time availability. What are your strengths as a father? I'm opinionated. Never queasy. Never afraid. Give opinion. Outspoken, but not rude, but certainly outspoken. What are your weaknesses as a father? I can't think of any. Fair enough. Relatedly, what is your biggest regret as a father? I have none. Parenthetically, one might think, why not? I have no grandchildren, never will. My daughter's were both married for periods of time and chose not to remain married. That was their decision. Do I regret this? No. Do I feel maybe I'm closer to them because they don't have husbands to worry about? Yes. Do I think maybe I'm responsible for their divorces? Do I think that maybe our relationship, for better or worse, whatever the positive or negative sides of me as a being toward them as their father, has affected their relationship with men, I worry about that. I don't know what I would kind of grapple with as a possible explanation. Why do I have two daughters, both divorced, both childless? Do I, I can take, I can take a high road and say, because they never could match the man that is their father. They were looking for a father replacement. Ha ha, they never found it. So they gloat in that discovery, but I'm not sure it's true. What is your favorite activity to do with your children? That is your special father and daughter thing. When I was younger, I'm 85, as I said, playing tennis was the thing. We'd love to play tennis as a team. My wife also, she's not a good player, but as a foursome on the tennis court, we would play doubles. I would play with my younger daughter, Catherine, and Pamela would play, who was more athletic, would play with her mother. To even it out. Yeah, and it was just fun. We really loved that. We don't ski. I don't ski. Actually, I don't do anything physical anymore. My my shoulders are ruined. Rotator cuff problems. I can't lift weights and I can't play tennis. What has been the moment you've been most proud of as a parent and why? Proud of your children and why? I think graduation in college was a high mark because because I then felt they were women and I remember the pleasure in seeing my investment, my wife's investment in their education, achieving a kind of celebration in this graduation ceremony. What heirloom did your father give to you, if any? 
Well, I have certain objects of his, cufflinks, a watch, tie clips, certain ties, in fact, and clothes that he made. My father's a tailor and made my own clothes, and I don't have clothes that he made for me now, but the heirloom was not in the sense of an object, but in the sense of a, of, of a sentiment. What I have is a sentiment, a prideful father who took enormous pride in what he did for a living. What heirloom do you want to leave to your children, if any? Worldly possessions that Nan and I have obviously are going to be inherited since we have no other sources to leave things to. But what I'm going to leave to them, and I think my wife as well, people that appreciated doing well in jobs, doing well, caring about what you do, never taking lightly the responsibility of doing a good job. Describe the dad special for dinner. Because you don't cook, I guess this is when you go out to eat. Or do you have a special gay to lease? No, the only thing that's special about dinners, they are preceded with dry gin martinis. And my daughter Pamela and Catherine both, maybe in deference to me, do drink gin martinis when they're with me. And even my wife takes a sip. So the gin martini. Oh, it's an old-fashioned drink. You see it in old movies. Are you religious, and are you raising your children in that tradition? Oddly, no. Um, now that we're almost ready for a grave, we have no plans for a church funeral. Religion has, in one level, ceased to exist within us in our 60, almost 60 years of marriage. What is a mistake you made growing up that you want to ensure your children don't repeat? I, oh, God, I'm... I don't remember a mistake. I don't think I've done anything in life from the time I was young. Everything that I would do the same thing again. I know it's a cliche to say that. I don't wish that I went to Harvard. I don't wish that I didn't become Stephen King and make a million dollars. I don't wish anything. In fact, I have so little reason to complain about anything. So there's no un unfulfilled wishes here. How do you make sure your children know that you love them? Well, I put it in writing about every day I write a note, and now I do email with them. It's always expressed personally and in writing, on the telephone. It, it never unexpressed for any length of time. And it's sincerely felt. Gay to leave. Thank you for oh, sitting here with me and, thank you. and opening yourself up. And, uh, thank you. I hope you enjoy your movie tonight. Yes, yes. <laughs> Good. Let's take a break to hear from our sponsor, ADT. We'll be back with Oh Hey Science with our science editor, Josh Krish. Home isn't just a place, it's a feeling. The feeling that you and your family are safe to enjoy the things that matter most. Whether for your home or business, ADT helps keep you safe so you can feel protected wherever you are. Not sure where to start? Try the new ADT Security Starter Kit for only $49, including a professional installation. Hurry, offer ends soon. Visit ADT.com slash podcast to learn more. 36-month monitoring contract required. Enrollment in QSP and EasyPay required only in select markets. So I'm here sitting across from Josh Krish, our illustrious bearded science correspondent. Good to be here. 
both on the podcast and off of it doing the fatherly questionnaire, I talk to a lot of very successful fathers. Oftentimes, part of their success is predicated on them not being home very often. One of the questions of the questionnaire is, what is your biggest regret as a father? And often the answer is that I'm not home enough. I'm not around my kids enough. But, and they always add this corollary, when I am home, I make sure that I'm present and connected and involved. Part of me buys it. Part of me feels like it's an excuse. That actually that's a story they tell themselves to feel better about not being around. So my question to you, Josh, is, is it quality over quantity? Are they right? Or are they just fooling themselves and it's quantity over quality? It's really a mixed bag. When we talk about the father effect, which is the effect of having a father around on a child, we're talking about engaged fathers, and we're definitely talking about a quality over quantity arrangement, where a father, rather than making sure that he's hovering over his kid at all times and doing nothing meaningful or sitting on the couch and calling that quality time, is finding a way to actually engage with the child, attend their after-school sporting events, help them with their homework, sit down with them and talk. We definitely see in the literature that children benefit a lot more from high-quality parenting than they do from high-quantity parenting that doesn't have quality. Yeah, high-quantity, low-quality, low-involvement parenting. Right. Not good for children. Okay. So definitely when they say that they try to spend quality time with their children, they're spot on. That's exactly what they should be doing. But high-quality parenting, according to many of the studies that have been done, doesn't seem to replace the need for high-quantity parenting as well. (laughs) Right. That is, it's also very important that parents spend a lot of time with their kids. When a father's not around regularly, even when he makes sure his visits count, he's not doing the best thing by his kids, according to most studies. There is a part of the study that said the father effect doesn't occur regardless of how high quality the time is for non-resident fathers. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, this is based on some findings from the Fragile Families Study. This is a big project by Princeton and Columbia. They looked at 5,000 kids born between 1998 and 2000, and they've just been following them. 75% of these kids don't have a father who's around regularly. They just want to see what's going to happen in the long term. So they've been following them and looking at their outcomes. And what they're finding is that absentee fathers, even when they make their visits count, you know, rather than just spending an hour a week with their kid on the couch, they spend that hour a week mini-golfing or sitting down and talking about the facts of life. But then then go back to their own house and the kid stays in the other house. Right, while living separate from their kids. They're finding that doesn't really help, that we're just not seeing the father effect boost that you get from having an active dad who lives with you from an active dad who does not live with you. What this broadly suggests is that there might not be very many options for a father who doesn't live with his kids if he wants his kids to enjoy the father effect. Okay, fine. Absentee fathers can't give the kid a father effect, even if they spend high-quality time with them occasionally. Or even if it's not occasionally, but they don't cohabitate. My question to you, is that better or worse than a kid being in a broken home, broken meaning they still live together, but there's tension or stress or whatever? That's my question. Okay. So the question is, given that we're not in the ideal situation, so we have here a mother and a father who can't stand each other and they're fighting all the time. Yes. Is it better for that father to leave, become an absentee dad who's just not around that much but spare his child a tumultuous upbringing, or to stick it out, be in the house, and recognize I'll be around but it won't be pleasant? Which one hurts the kid more? Deep personal relevance, so please tread carefully. I'm not aware of clear answers in the research to this question, but I can put together some of the other studies and try to give you an answer. We know that there are serious physical health effects, physical health effects to kids that grow up in violent or otherwise unfriendly homes. If the parents are fighting all the time, this actually causes them to get sick more often. They get colds more often, one study found. They have shorter lifespans. 
So we're talking real physical effects for kids who grow up in a home where their mother and father are fighting all the time. On the other hand, when we're talking father effects, what we're talking about is advantages mostly, with the exception of maybe risky sexual behaviors and a slightly lower IQ for children who don't have a father around all the time. Mostly what we're talking about is how can I make my child more likely to succeed by being around more often? So when we compare these two outcomes, a father who's at home but fighting all the time and making life miserable is going to cause negative effects. And a father who's absent is going to miss out on giving their children the positive effects It's not so difficult to draw the line and say it'd be better to leave than to make your child's life a living hell. But these are obviously both unideal scenarios. I love talking to you because you illuminate this world of studies which are designed with such clarity and compare and contrast between these two control groups. But when I hear you, to me, I'm always thinking, well, in my life, it's such a messy and less than ideal situation that I'm not comparing apples to apples. I feel like I'm always comparing apples to Saudi Arabia and jelly beans. You know, it's like sometimes the science on parenting is so cold and clinical that it's hard to even express when you're talking about it to other people. Like take it to the next extreme. We have studies that have shown that absentee fathers are worse for their kids than dead fathers. Now, you don't want to say the outcome of that, right? The logical outcome of that is if you have a choice of being a deadbeat dad or a dead dad, you're better off dead. That's a really rough conclusion. Science at sometimes, especially with parenting studies, can be incredibly clinical, and we shouldn't draw direct conclusions about how to live based on the results of these studies. But it is useful to have an idea of which decisions we make and which impacts they're likely to have. It seems that if a father chooses to be an active member of the family in a positive way, children get ridiculous advantages over other kids. And if a father is going to make his child's life a living hell— and he has the option to leave, it seems that that would be better than sticking around. But obviously the best scenario is to be an active, engaged, friendly father. What I really want is I want some researcher to get all of these studies together and say, if you could be a high-quality, highly-engaged dad, great. If not, You want a flowchart for dad. I want a flowchart. flowchart. That's exactly (laughs) what I want. If you can't be high-quantity, at least be high-quality. If you can't be high-quality, then... Don't stick it out and leave. And if you leave, die. (laughs) (laughs) Here's what we can talk about. There's not a flowchart, but there are concrete ways to mitigate the effects of being absent if you have to not be around. How? It depends. So if you're going through a divorce, then the best thing you can do is maintain a healthy, amicable relationship with your spouse. Studies have shown that children from divorced families don't really turn out any differently than other children, assuming that their parents get along. But if their parents are fighting, if there's ugly custody battles, if they're constantly being torn between two types of parents, each one saying, I'm right, you're wrong, this situation gives them all the negative health effects of being from a broken home, even once you've already left. There was a crazy study that came out a year ago that actually took a bunch of adults who had come from broken homes, that is, parents who'd fought a whole lot and ultimately gotten divorced, and the divorces were ugly, put them in a hotel so that they couldn't have any outside influences, and injected a bunch of them with the cold virus just to see how many of them were susceptible to the cold. They found the children from broken homes who grew up to be adults in this isolated hotel were more likely to get the cold than other children. Their immune systems were inferior. They have shorter lifespans, lower IQs, uh, less likely to be successful in the workplace, more likely to drop out of school. Science does seem very cut and dry and sometimes heartless, but there is something really emotional and human about operating in this world, which is suboptimal, realizing as a father who isn't around all the time, that you just can't 
part of the consequences of that is your kids won't have the father effect. You might see yourself as a wonderful dad, and you might be a wonderful dad, but if for whatever reason it doesn't work out with their mom and you can't stay in the household, they're not going to get that. There's advantages they're going to miss out on, and sometimes it's better to leave because you're you're avoiding bigger problems. Right. Because it's a home that just no child can be successfully raised in. So sometimes you're forced into a corner where you have to make a suboptimal decision. But yeah, science is very honest about the fact that sometimes you're forced to make a decision that's not going to result in the best outcome for your child, but at least better than the one that they're facing right now. Yeah. There aren't always happy endings in scientific studies, unfortunately. Just a lot of footnotes. <laughs> yeah, a lot of footnotes. <laughs> There's uh, there's another situation where dads might be absent, and that's when they're incarcerated or they work far, far away and they only visit their families once a month or a couple times a year for whatever reason. In this case, writing letters helps, phone calls helps. Anything that keeps your children aware of the fact that you care about them helps. But as you mentioned, and as we've been saying over and over again, you're not going to get the father effect. You're not going to have a lot of the advantages. What you can do is you can try to cut some of your losses by being as active as possible from a distance. Another thing that the research suggests helps is sending money. Children typically know when their fathers are deadbeats and when their fathers are sending a check every month. Paying child support is actually a way to ensure that your children feel at least somewhat loved. Yeah, but I will also share from my own personal experience. You know, I grew up in a broken home. I have father issues for sure. But my dad did give money to my mom, alimony or whatever, but he always talked to us about it. Like, I'm giving your mom, you know, like, why do I have to give her all this money? What is she doing? You know, like, he really drove that home that he resented. And I get it. I mean, he had to give- Of course he resented it. But as we've seen from the literature, that's not an amicable relationship. No. And that's something, that, that's something that plays heavily on the kid. That's something that's going to damage the child if they see their father complaining about giving the money. But on the other hand, it would definitely be damaging to the child to know that their father doesn't pay for them. Right. There's something to be said for knowing that your father is financially supporting you. Yeah. This whole conversation and divorce, and I, I am passionate about the subject matter, it's really about, as a dad, not falling into the binary of I'm a good dad or I'm a bad dad. If you're a good dad, you would have stayed. If you're a bad dad, you just lick your wounds and go off into your own thing and you give up. And it's really about staying in that middle area and doing your best, knowing that it's not going to be perfect. It's so tough to occupy that space, you know? Yeah, but absolutely. If there's one thing that we're seeing clearly from dad's studies is that the idea of the perfect dad and the perfectly rotten dad isn't so much in the literature. Most dads have to deal with different shades of gray. And what you have to do is you have to follow the scientific evidence as best as possible to deal with the situation that you have to be the best father that you can be within that context. Yeah. You know, funnily, my son, Augie, yesterday, he said, you're not perfect, but you're the best. And I was like, what what do you mean? He goes, mommy's perfect. And that's like, like the highest. And you're not as good as mommy, but you're the best. I was like, I get. Thank you, I guess. <laughs> and then he felt bad about it. And then right when I was talking him, and he goes, "Daddy, you're the best you you can be." Oh man. <laughs> oh like, man. <laughs> okay, I'll t- I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. It was even more cutting because he's just a kid. He <laughs> right. thought he was being like the sweetest. You know. It was truth. Anyway, thank you so much, Josh. Absolutely. Okay, now it's time for the fatherly endorsement. When other parents come over, as much as I'd like to say that we discuss current events or the latest trends in contemporary choreography, we really end up just talking about our kids, which is fun and maybe a little boring. There's a new card game out there called Kinder Perfect, 
which just started shipping in November, and it's kind of a Cards Against Humanity for parents. It was developed by a couple in D.C. with an 8- and 9-year-old, and you can really tell that there's inside parenting experience. Basically, it's like a call-and-response game or a fill-in-the-blanks. One parent has a red card, he or she has a question. The other parents have white cards, which are potential answers. You submit your answer, everyone votes about which answer is funniest, and then the person who wins becomes a questionnaire. It's fun when you're sober, even more fun after bedtime when you're drunk. Some of the questions are, for instance, I'd rather deal with blank than blank. And then the answers might be, that fucking elf on a shelf, or Caillou, that whiny bitch. As you can see, this comes from a place of love and a little bit of frustration. Some of my favorite questions, what is making things awkward at the PTA meeting? Maybe pretending to give a damn? I call this hairstyle blank. Vodka bottle in the diaper bag. And have kids, they said. It'll be fun, they said. Instead, we got a poopy finger, which has a ring of truth to anyone with kids. So you're going to be around a lot of parents this holiday season. Order Kinder Perfect. It's 25 bucks. Available on Amazon. You get 400 cards. And it is officially endorsed by Fatherly. That'll do it for this week of the Fatherly Podcast. This is Joshua David Stein signing off. Stay cool, dads. Today's show was produced by Kelly Kramer. The theme music is by Kyle Forrester, with vocals by Augie Heerenstein. Special thanks to Josh Krish, Andrew Berman, and the rest of the team at Fatherly. For more Fatherly content, follow us on Facebook at Fatherly HQ. For my random thoughts on life, poor usage of hashtags, and mildly witty dad jokes, follow me on Twitter at FakeJoshStein. Be sure to subscribe to the Fatherly Podcast with iHeartRadio on your favorite podcast app. And stay tuned for updates on upcoming episodes.